as the theme of breaking chains has uh, developed. And uh, at first I was thinking to myself, I can't, can't quite see how this fits with the theme that I've, I've prepared. I haven't told anybody I'm going to preach, and I never do. And uh, unless, of course, it's something where Stuart's asked me to preach to a particular subject. Um, but um, as, as I've been standing there and, and kind of meditating on it, I can see that actually the breaking of chains is very relevant to what I want to say this morning. And uh, we're going to read, if you've got a Bible there, um, John chapter 4, it will be on the screen. John chapter 4 and reading from verse 43. And uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning, I was going to, it is really, I've, my, if you like, wanted a to, t- title, it would have been Steps of Faith. And, um, but in one sense, and it is about Steps of Faith, how, we, how faith is birthed in us and how then we progress faith in our Christian lives. And uh, in that sense, um, what I want to say is this, that the breaking of chains, that we're talking about this morning, I can see that in a way, in this story, is a man who had been chained by his circumstances. And what we're going to be reading about and seeing is how, if you like, blow by blow, or in fact step by step, which way you look at it, blow by blow breaking the chain that had wrapped itself around him, and it was a big chain, uh, and step by step, if you like, if you look at it that way, as to how Jesus leads this man uh, out and builds his faith as he goes. And uh, we can never talk about faith too much, can we? Because faith is at the heart of everything that we think and say and do. And uh, as Christians, we talk about our Christian faith. And it's faith that we, um, we're talking about here today. Active, living faith. Not theoretical. Not... Um, getting your theology right. Has anybody ever got their theology right? I mean, uh, there's a million theologies out there, actually, even within the Christian world. Uh, And uh, I said millions, didn't I? Roger often says to me, he's not here today, gone to see his family, but uh, he often quotes to me, he says, I've I've told you millions and millions and millions of times not to exaggerate. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so that was a slight exaggeration, but if you start studying Christian theology, which isn't necessarily a good thing, <laughs> somebody will talk to me about that later probably, but it is a good thing. But there's so many views on so many aspects of it. it you know, there is a, it's bigger than any of us can comprehend at the end of the day. The theology that God has in his heart and mind, if you like, is what we're still trying to unwrap. And three, 2,000 years of Christians... Uh, study has not fully, not fully, it only brushed the surface, I think, of what really is in the heart of God and the, the great mysteries of faith that there are. So we're gonna, I'm going to read this story, and then it's going to be on the screen behind me, and uh, you can, as I refer to it, you hopefully can follow it through. So let's, uh, let's read it. John chapter 4, verse 43. After two days... Jesus is in Jerusalem. He says, after two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, 
where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Jesus said, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. The right official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word. That is a key verse this morning. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. It's a great story. And it's a story, as I've said already, that we're going to unwrap a bit this morning. The first thing I notice about the story is there is an acute, human, urgent need. And the need is that the son has contracted a fever and he is now close to death. There can be no greater, perhaps, tragedy in a family when a child is so sick that it is close to to death, and sometimes actually dies. That is probably the most awful tragedy that anyone can undergo, or certainly among the worst. And in a sense, this man is a royal official. He was probably, he almost certainly a Jew himself. He was probably um, a royal official in one of the Herods. There were several Herods, I won't go into the history of it, but the one of the, the local Herods who ruled the country in different sections uh, with King Herod, the one that you read about in the time of um, Jesus' crucifixion, as if you like, the, the, the high king, and then he had two or three sons who were ruling different parts of the country. And this man, this royal official, probably comes from one of those um, lesser families, as it were, but nevertheless royal in the context of, of the story. And uh, you could say that as a royal official, life is pretty good for him, probably, and uh, he's, he's not doing too badly. And then, tragedy strikes. Now, I don't know whether he was a man of faith in the first place. We're not told. He may well have been, uh, according to his Jewish understanding of faith and so on. But in that moment, when his son is lying close to death, it's if, suppose he was unchained, but in this moment, the chains of illness fall not only just upon the son, but upon the father and probably upon the mother and upon the family. And suddenly everything is falling around him and wrapping itself about him. And he's being crushed by the weight of the chains that are being put upon him at this moment. And it's so often at that moment, and perhaps you and I have been in it at some stage in our lives, I know I have, when faith, as it were, appears to fly out the window, where faith that you believe that you once had Seems like it's drained. Somebody pulled the plunk, plug from the sink and it drained away in that moment. Just when you needed faith most, it was not there in that moment. And circumstances batter you and beat you 
and tragedy strikes and you just wonder where faith has gone. In times past, people used to talk about being at wit's end corner and perhaps some of you have been at wit's end corner in your lives and perhaps you are even this morning. He was in despair. Faith had evaporated. He's absolutely desperate. And uh, how more desperate can you be, as I said? Sickness is no respecter of persons, is it? Have you noticed that? It strikes the rich and the poor, the great and the good. It strikes the poor and the humble. Sickness will strike wherever sickness decides to strike. And all kinds of other tragedies do as well. And being a Christian does not make us immune to the tragedies of life. And some of you sitting there this morning have experienced those tragedies big time. And uh, you, you have been through the fire of those experiences. And praise God, many of you have come out of it w- with a testimony and with a strengthened faith. But first, you had to go through the fire of those circumstances. I'm not suggesting for one moment that God creates situations like that. Situations like that just happen in a fallen world. In the perfect world, they would not have happened. If Adam had not sinned, we would still be living in a paradise. But he did sin. And in that moment, if you like, he released um, a chain that has wrapped itself around humankind ever since. And that's why we need Jesus to go to the cross and smash that chain once and for all. And that's right what Richard has said to us this morning. Christ won the victory. And if we can grasp the truth of that, we will learn to stand in that victory. Now, we often don't because there's an enemy there who doesn't want you to stand in victory. He wants you to stand in defeat. He wants to keep you in the place of defeat. And when you're defeated, if you pardon the pun, if when you're defeated, you fall over. No feet, no standing. And that's what he wants to achieve in our lives. He wants to knock us down again and again and again and again. Because he's scared stiff that you will stand up and stand in the victory that Christ has offered you. And if you stand in that victory, come what all. When Paul in Ephesians, having told us about the armor of God, and he says, but above all else, stand. Just stand. Just stand. Now, immediately, in my head, I'm thinking, more easily said than done. And it is. That's true. It is more easily said than done. it's, It's, when we preach, we preach always to the high, if we hope, to the highest possible standard in terms not of quality but of telling the truth, telling you the way it is, speaking this truth that we know. And we have to be honest about everyday life because if we're not honest about everyday life, what we preach is not relevant. We have to make it very relevant. We are blessed in our church with a pastor who speaks to us and brings us relevant teaching. Um, he didn't ask me to say this, <laughs> but relevant teaching to our everyday lives. And that is very important so that we can build throughout our lives and learn to stand in the victory that Christ has already secured for us. So we're not immune. This man was not immune. But, so he's in despair. And now he's in that moment of despair, somebody comes to him with a message and says to him, Jesus, the healer, they don't know who he is really, Jesus, the wonder worker, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. The rumors are that he's been doing some remarkable things, been down in Jerusalem. We know that he turned water into wine in Cana, but, but 
these miracles that he's been doing there, they exceed what's gone before. And now we hear he's coming back to Galilee. At that moment, a spark of faith arises in this man's life. In verse 47, that's where we we're told that this is happening. And uh, when the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee, he went to him. This was the beginning, the first step of restoring faith in his life. He heard that Jesus... You know, when, before we were Christians, there was a moment when we heard of Jesus. I mean, we may have heard of him as a historic character, but we heard him because the Holy Spirit, by one means or another, drew us to him, spoke to us about him. And, and we found ourselves on a journey of faith, which we're all still on. That moment of birth of something in us, which is the grace of God working for us. And what, what, from that moment, there's a spark of hope now. The healer, the miracle worker, is coming into the area. And faith begins to arise. It says there that while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs Jesus was doing. And Passover would have included huge numbers of people from Galilee, and they would have re- been returning. And as they returned, more and more the stories grew. And more and more the man heard about it. And when he hears that Jesus has actually arrived in Cana, which is 15 miles from Capernaum, he decides that he will go there at once. And he travels 15 miles. I don't know how he traveled. and It doesn't matter, but he set out. Kind of a, for the purpose of, if you like, of preaching this, I'd like to believe he walked. Because I want to believe that every step he took... As he took, it was a step of faith. Every step was a step of faith. Hope was in his heart again. And he, that, that was growing. The expectation, I believe, was growing as he approached uh, the, the, uh, the town of, of Cana. So a spark was beginning to grow larger and larger. So he's back in Cana and... Uh, uh, Jesus there has demonstrated by turning water into wine. Um, John records that as his first miracle. Uh, and uh, that lovely phrase when, when Mary says to the, to the servants, whatever he says to you, just do it. Doesn't, how crazy it sounds, just do it. Just do it, which is a good word for us this morning again. So he's back. And he's demonstrated his lordship over the natural world. By turning water into wine. Water does not turn into wine. I've prayed over my glass of water many times, but it always stays H2O. Yeah, it, uh, so don't bother. It's a waste of time, waste of breath. But um, it, it, it was a sign of Jesus' lordship over everything, really. So he's heard it, and he seizes the opportunity, and every step is a step of faith. Now, my friend Matthew Henry who's a great Bible commentator from about 200, 300 years ago. And I often quote this. If you've heard it before, I'm sure. Matthew Henry says about faith that faith grows from less to more. On the whole, it does not come down through the ceiling. It comes out of the word, right? As you read the scripture, faith arises. There are those occasions, I have to say this, 
There are those occasions when faith does descend, as it were, through the ceiling. Moment when you really need it, and it comes down, and it fills you, and you're able to step out and do something that you did not previously believe you could do. That will happen. But broadly speaking, the foundation of faith is the word of God and our confidence in what God has said in his word. And so, step by step, he gets there. Like faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. As somebody said to me this morning, they should be doing their exercises. And, uh, and I know about that because I have to do exercises these days to strengthen my back since I injured it last year. And I know that when I forget, no, can't be bothered, if, to be honest, to do it. <laughs> don't forget, I can't be bothered. Life is too busy. You know? and, but when I don't do it, I, I, I suffer for it. So I didn't do my exercises this morning, and by the time I got to the door of the church, I was, you know. Anyway, they, I prayed for myself coming down the road, and then uh, I was praying. Andy prayed, Susan prayed for me at the door. So uh, I'm feeling a lot better, thank God, and moving around better. So, taking steps of faith. So this spark of faith now it becomes a flame of faith. As the man journeys, his expectation grows, um, He's um, heard the witness of the crowds and the people. Real-life testimony can fan the spark of faith into a flame. If God has answered prayer in our lives, then we need to testify to it. Now, sometimes we don't because sometimes people are frightened that perhaps having testified, whatever it is, might go away again. Well, just testify because even in the testimony, there is a step of faith as to what God has done in your life. And if you get a setback, Okay, once, you know, maybe it might be one step forward, two steps back on occasions, but nevertheless, just keep moving forward and, and, and do not be deterred, as I say, by opposition that will come when you seek to exercise faith in your life and in your circumstances. This man certainly didn't. He just kept going. And so let's testify. When we testify to things, let's be careful not to, have, not to exaggerate. That's a very easy thing to do. God, God does not honor exaggeration, you know. If um, I testify this morning, I've been prayed for, my back feels a lot better now again, and I think God's reminded me to do my exercises. But having said that, um, it, it, I need to bear that in mind, and if I get a setback, I need to think, well, why has that happened? And uh, so on. I said to somebody, it's no accident perhaps this morning that I'm preaching and my back is painful. I repeat, it's not painful now. So, thank you, Lord. So, now the man is face to face with Jesus. And uh, the urgency of what's within him kind of boils over. And it says he's passionate. Of course he was. His son is dying. He needs to get Jesus. In his own mind, he's got to get Jesus now <clears throat> back 15 miles. It takes a long time to walk 15 miles. Uh, and... Uh, so he wants to get Jesus back before his son dies, you see. And so there's that, that part of him that is passionate. And it says he begged. He begged. I guess he was on his knees before Jesus. If it had been my daughter, I would have been on my knees before Jesus. And I would have said, come now. Please, come now. And, and I think most of us would be the same. And then something very strange happens. Very strange. Verse 48, you might have expected Jesus' response to make, right, yes, I'll come straight away. 
That's what he does with Jairus' daughter, is see. He says to Jairus, I'll come with you. On this occasion, Jesus says to the man, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you refuse to believe. It sounds like a real smack in the face, doesn't it? You know, the man's thinking, my son is sick, my son is dying. Why are you saying that to me? Unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you, you, you refuse to believe. It sounds like a cross and angry remark, doesn't it? You know, a frustration almost on the part of Jesus. I'm sure Jesus did get frustrated sometimes with people like us, didn't you? Probably still does. And uh, oh, I'll tell you this, I saw in my little kind of theology, Albert, I, I see the throne of God. And on this side, you know, the, the, the padding on it is worn completely down to the, the wooden below. And I think that's where God bangs his head on the, on, the, on, on, the, on, the, on the arm of the chair over the things we get up to and the things we do and our lack of faith, if you like, sometimes. But God is very gracious and kind, so I'm not, sh- I'm not sure I'm right there. But, it, it, yeah, it, it puts me in my right place when I think about it anyway. So he appears to pour water. Now, interesting enough, the Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, of about 100-plus years ago, actually helps us here. And he says this. He said, the people's desire, this was the whole great crowd, the people's desire for signs and wonders was proving to be a hindrance to true faith. Look at that, a hindrance to true faith. And then he says this, faith should precede signs and wonders, not follow it. All right? He adds, do not lay down a program and demand that the Holy Spirit pay attention to it. Then he says this, let him determine how and when. This is good stuff coming from a great preacher, isn't it? He's not denying the value of sign and wonder. He's simply saying, if we focus on sign of wonder, we're missing something. We need to to focus upon the source of all sign and wonder. We need to focus upon Jesus. We need to focus upon the love of God. We need to focus upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, instead of, as we often do in prayer, tell God what to do, we wait until he tells us what to do. So let him determine how and when. We believe in signs and wonders in this church. We believe that God heals the sick. We know that God delivers. We know that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we all ask or think. Right, but we should not uh, we should not lay down a program and say you must do this. We can't say must to God at any time, except perhaps saying, um, well, you don't have to say must. You're praying for something. You, you must save them because He wants to save them. The obstacle will be in the person I- Himself. So, what suddenly seems to be a rebuff, actually, for this man, causes the flame to actually. Um, burn brighter which I think was Jesus real intention because the man is undeterred by these comments totally undeterred and all he says he doesn't argue with Jesus he simply says come now before my child dies I don't think it's necessarily laying down a problem he's just pouring out his heart again because he had such faith that Jesus would come with him see the man is He's still pinned to the thought of Jesus coming with him to heal his son. 
That's his kind of laid-down agenda. He has actually worked it out, hasn't he? If Jesus will come down, then he will lay hands on my son or speak the word over him or touch him in some way and my son will be healed. He's got that far in faith, but he believes that Jesus must be there personally to do it. And, and when Jesus says this to him, it's like he just lets that wash over him to a degree and his passion and his faith grow stronger and brighter in the, in the light of that. And he says to Jesus, please, please come. Please come. I want to put something in brackets here. I believe that we who are baptized in the Holy Spirit and have received the gift of tongues can in these extremities of life use that gift of tongues very effectively. When we do not know what to do, when we do not know which way to turn, when faith appears to have fled from us, if you have the gift of praying in tongues, then use that gift. That's what it's for. It's for, it's for worshipping God, but it's also from Romans 8, and we can't go into it now. It is where, with the, where Paul tells us, the Spirit will pray with us. And, and I stop using English, and I pray in tongues, and I don't know what I'm actually saying, but I do know that the Spirit is taking that to the throne of grace, and that God, I'm not laying down my agenda, I'm seeking to be in, in, in cooperation uh, and in hand in hand with what God wants in this situation. Okay, if we followed that, we might be less disappointed in some many respects. So here we are. Jesus then says to him, without any hesitation on his part, "You may go. Your son will live. Go. It's already happened." Now, in the King James version, it just says, "Your son liveth. Your son liveth." statement and almost do you believe that and the man does believe it because this man's faith has now grown and he's seen something and it says this the man took jesus at his word key as i said this the man took jesus at his word and departed he didn't hesitate for another conversation he didn't say well perhaps you would come anyway no he doesn't he understands in his heart in his spirit that actually God has spoken. The thing has been done. And he's been told, depart, go. He's alive. And he does. And for me, that's a massive step of faith he's taken. This little spark's grown into a great flame. And then it seems to burst, as we shall see in a minute, into a great beacon. Faith grows to maturity when it's rooted and built on God's word. And this was God's word to him. We talk in our Pentecostal way, don't we? In our charismatic way. About looking for a word from the Lord. And that's a good thing to do. You know, God, will you speak to me? In these circumstances, will you give me a word? You know? And then we have to wait for that word to come. You know, it doesn't just happen. We have to wait. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> if you want to hear from God, one of the best ways, don't wait for Sunday mornings. Make sure you're reading this, this, your Bible on a regular basis. Because my experience is that God speaks out of his word. The most probably one of the, most, one of the most important decisions in my life. And I asked God for a word. It took a week before I was reading in the scriptures and the word came out as clear, as clear, as clear could be. And I had no doubt. And I walked on that word and I have not looked back since. And, 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 and I've learned the lesson. We need a word from the Lord, especially for important decisions. 
and God will give you that word. But again, it won't necessarily um, come in this present meeting. It may not come for another week. It may not come for a month. It might take six months. And if you're sensible, you'll hang into the circumstances until such time as God put a word in your heart. It comes through the prophetic word that we hear this morning. We've heard one this morning. Uh, we've had several this morning, as people have shared. See, listen. You will know when God speaks to you. And this man's faith has now, if you like, burst into, uh, in, into what's blossomed or, or it's flaming and so on. So, the flame becomes a beacon. And, and interesting things happens. Uh, we see here at the moment, um, he, he took, when he took Jesus at his word and his son was healed and the fever left. And, and he, that is confirmed by the servants as they come to meet him. They're not going to wait until he arrives home and tell him. They're on their way to say, look, um, your, your son has already been healed. And uh, his question is very interesting, isn't it? And it's recorded. He says, at what time did this happen? And they specify the time. And he says, that was the exact moment when Jesus made a declaration, your son will live. That's a wonderful Wonderful example of God's precise timing uh, in the whole situation. So it says here, the fever left. A glorious outcome. What is the glorious outcome here this morning? Well, the glorious outcome is this, and we read it in, um, we read it in, the, in the scripture here that, um, turn my page, it says, so he... And all his household believed. See, this was a great testimony to the royal household from which he had come. He's an official in it. But when he gets back, you know, the power of what has happened, the demonstration of God's power, is, and everybody knew the boy was just about to die. And everybody heard that at the critical moment, the fever left him. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's like Jesus going into the home of, of um, Peter and Peter's mother-in-law is, is laying sick and, and she's also got a, an extremely high fever, the scripture says, a dangerously high fever. A, and Jesus raises her up in that moment. The, the power of his word, the power of his word in our lives. Now, John, who's gospel we're reading from in chapter 20 and verse 36 says this jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book many are recorded in the other three gospels but these are not recorded in this book actually john limits the miracles that he refers to because we don't have time to go into it he is taking miracle by miracle and he rearranges the order of things. Things are not necessarily chronological in John's Gospel because he's writing a long time. He's writing after the other Gospels have been written, and he's writing for a somewhat different purpose, and this is the purpose. He's setting out a pattern of um, what happened in Jesus' life. And he says this. These, they're not recorded in this book, but those, these are written. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. It's the purpose of every gospel. But John is setting that out for us. And uh, uh, not recorded in this book, he says. There are many others, but these miracles are recorded for a purpose that you might believe. You know, the very first step of faith is when we recognize that we're sinners and in need of salvation. When we are led by the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says this, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that sums up his understanding. And you and I, who are in Christ, we could say that this morning, couldn't we? The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I don't understand why he, understands why he loves a man like me. You know, I don't understand why he loves people like you. <laughs> no, perhaps a bit I do, because you're all very lovely. But... <laughs> But do you know what I mean? That we know ourselves, don't we? And, um, but he understands. The Son of God loved me. And when he understood that and gave himself for me, on that, Paul based the rest of his life. And most of us here this morning have done exactly that, haven't we? We have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, and for the rest of our lives and until we get into heaven itself. I want to say this, there is no better day than today for you to take that first step of faith and begin the journey of faith. Like this man began a journey of faith for the healing of his son. But the healing of his son turned into the healing of the family, if you like. And it turned into salvation for this man. Uh, and, and so today here, you could be not, already, not, not yet having fully understood the gospel, and yet, in your heart this morning, I prayed that the Holy Spirit would work and move and draw you this morning. And I urge you this morning to take that first step of faith, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to not hesitate. It, look, I believe for some of you here this morning, there will have been times when you had no faith. Well, all of us, with us, we had time when there was no faith. But I believe the people here, perhaps you're, you're very new among us, but... Today could be the day when you take that first step. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not see the whole journey that lays ahead of you. You know, you won't. See, this man walked 15 miles. You won't see the next 15 minutes necessarily yet. But when you're in Christ, once you've received him in your heart and life, then everything changes. Not all at once, but in a progressive way as we grow into Christ and part of the family of Christ here and so on. So no better day than today for you to take that step of faith for the first time. And for those who are already in the journey of faith, this is a great day for us to take another step of faith in our lives. And whatever, I ask the question, what is it in your life today that you need to take a step of faith for? What do you need to take a step of faith for? I'm not going to suggest anything because there's so many things. But I say whatever it is today, in your heart and your mind, take that step of faith. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a moment just to be quiet. I, I feel I want to give you that opportunity. The opportunity to respond.